You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. My name's Tyler Holder. I'm our pastor of Adult and College Ministry, and I'm excited to be walking with you today through Scripture together. Now, as you find your way to Philippians chapter 1, let me just ask really quick, how many of you have ever met somebody from another culture or context? Another country, you've been there, right? It's clear when you interact with people from other cultures, that are citizens of other countries, that there's a difference, right? Right? We, it's fair to say there's just a difference when we interact with people. I've been a, a couple places in the world, and one of the, I would say, the one that stands out the most isn't a place I've necessarily been. It's, it's more the people that I've met from there. And it's not even another country in as much as it's another republic. How many of you have ever met somebody from the Republic of Texas? Right? If you've ever met a Texan, you know they're from Texas about three seconds into the conversation, right? Because they start talking about it. In fact, one of my dearest friends, Pastor Tyler Downing, is from the great Republic of Texas. And he, he's right here this morning. And it's amazing in our conversations how quick it goes to the Dallas Cowboys, never the Houston Texans. Right? It's amazing at the flora and the fauna and the landscape of Texas. It's amazing that at 113 degrees in mid-July, his tires melt to the ground. And for some reason, he's proud to be a citizen of Texas. I don't get it. In fact, if you're a citizen of Texas, the only acceptable place to put your drink is a Texas coaster. And this is from Pastor Wes's office, another Texan on staff. They're proud citizens of their republic. Every once in a while, I'll be driving down the road with Pastor Tyler, and just to get a giggle, I'll call out whether or not I see it or not, Texas! And he'll just immediately pipe up, like gauge spikes. He wants to pull over, run them off the road. Where are you from, Texas? Do you remember the world's largest convenience store in Texas? It's as big as a mall. You should go there. It's great. Bro, Texas ain't that exciting. <laughs> Unless you're a citizen of Texas. I love Pastor Tyler. I don't know if I love Texas, but one thing I realize is that there is a pride, there is an excitement, there is a desire to share about where he's from because his citizenship as someone born and bred in Texas filters through his whole life. And here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4, what we'll see this morning is that there's a greater citizenship available to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we've placed our faith and trust in the gospel of Christ alone, then there's something that's changed in us. And our citizenship is no longer indicative of where we were born. However, it is indicative of whether or not we've been born again. We have become gospel citizens if we become believers in Jesus Christ. And that citizenship impacts, influences, and filters our entire life. We get pumped, jazzed, and excited to tell others about the citizenship that we hold so dear. 
So this morning, as we look at Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 4, what I hope we'll see, I hope that we'll see is that as gospel citizens, if our story is woven together with the redemption of Christ on the cross, if that's us, then we will showcase the gospel, we will be united in the gospel, and we will put others first for the joy that the gospel gives us. So I hope you find your way to Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 27, this is what Paul says. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not brightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As gospel citizens, the first thing we see in this passage is found in the first part of verse 27, and it's simply this. Gospel citizens showcase the gospel. Notice what it says in that first part of verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself making these types of statements in my home. Jax, I only want the gallon of milk you haven't drank out of. Or baby girl, I only want the adult-sized snow shovel because I've been here two years, never seen snow before December, and this is freaking me out. I can't shovel with a six-inch wide shovel. I need the two-foot wide shovel. Baby girl, I only want the adult shovel. I don't know if you make those types of statements in your home, but when we make that type of statement, I only want this. What we're saying is, is that the most important thing right here, right now is what I'm about to tell you. I only need this one thing. And Paul here in verse 27 is telling us the only thing, the most important thing, the thing that we should focus on, that we should pay attention to, that we should look at, pursue, and understand, the only thing that we should hear right here, right now, is that we should let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word there for manner of life, by the way, is a specific word that's only used twice in the New Testament. In fact, the other time it's used is in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, and it's noun form, and Paul says, let your citizenship be that of heaven. The word there for manner of life carries with it the idea that your citizenship, who you are, informs your actions. I mean, you act differently because you're a citizen of the gospel just like every Texan I've ever met is weird. <laughs> They're different, man. You act differently. It carries with it the idea that if the gospel has redeemed your life, then you are no longer just a citizen of the earth, a citizen of Indiana, a citizen of Michiana, a citizen of Texas. Your manner of life, your citizenship is that of heaven, and that citizenship trumps any other citizenship you once had. 
Our citizenship is based upon the gospel of Christ, the gospel which declares to us the good news of Jesus, who is equal with God, but yet became man, who obeyed God the Father perfectly, who died and rose again so that by our union with him, all who believe will be counted righteous with Christ's righteousness through his obedience. And in that belief, we might be saved from sin and destruction and belong to Christ forever in the resurrection from the dead. The gospel is what defines our citizenship. Through faith in the gospel, Colossians 1 tells us that we have been transferred from a domain of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. We have been bought and paid for through the cross of Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that for those of us who have exercised saving faith in and through the gospel of Christ, if we have been nailed by the gospel of Christ alone in faith alone for the glory of God alone, if that is us, then realize we have a different passport now. Your citizenship has been changed. And it's not because of something you did. It's solely based upon what Christ accomplished on the cross and your faith in him and him alone. But the reality is, is that some of us here today have either had a mere intellectual assent to the gospel or we've just flat out rejected the gospel. So before we even dive into our sermon today, hear me tell you as clear as I can with as much heart as I have for you, the gospel changes everything. When you come to the realization that there is a perfect, holy God who created, formed, and fashioned you in your mother's womb, knit you together. But when sin entered the world and ruptured that relationship with him, you and I are born with a problem, that problem sin forever separating us from God. No matter what we've tried, no matter what we've done, no matter what we think we bring to the table, we are forever separated from a holy God were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ. So hear me say this morning that if you're here and you have yet, you have yet to turn your life over to the God of the universe, then the offer for you is simply this, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. A gospel that says through Christ alone, his sacrifice on the cross for your sins and for mine, we might have a reconciled relationship with the creator of the universe. That's my hope for you this morning. Because the reality is if that's not true for you, you aren't a gospel citizen. And everything we'll talk about this morning will make no sense to you because you haven't been bought and paid for by Jesus. For those of us that are gospel citizens, the idea here is that the one singular most important thing that we should know for our entire Christian lives is simply this, that our manner of life, our citizenship as gospel-bound believers needs to be, has to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word worthy, by the way, is a weird word for us. Sometimes we think of it in terms of we've received something we've worked for. Like I was worthy of the raise I got at work. Don't you know how much I sold? I was worthy of the grade I received on that paper. Didn't you see how much I researched and wrote? 
Here in Philippians 1.27, that's not what the word worthy means. The word worthy isn't indicative of you having earned anything. It's not that you are better than the person next to you. It's not that you're more righteous, more holy than your wife or your husband or your children. That's not what it is. Rather, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ means that we respond to the gospel's gift of eternal life in a manner befitting and deserving of Jesus. It's a response to what the gospel has done in our hearts. It's initiated by God, sustained by God, and completed by God. And our response, our participation is to bow our knees before the God of the universe and say, I can't do it. I'm jacked up. I'm messed up. I need your help. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm placing my faith and trust in you alone. And because of that, I've become a gospel citizen. And now, as a gospel citizen, what my life looks like, what my life is, what I do is forever changed. When gospel citizens fail to live lives worthily, catch this, they detract and distort from the beauty of the gospel. Far be it from me and you that it ever be said that the beauty of Jesus wasn't seen in us. As followers of Jesus, we must see that our new citizenship gives us the opportunity to be ambassadors to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, our schools. We are God's best plan for the redemption of the world. How then do you live worthy of the gospel? First, you have to get the gospel right in your own heart. You have to embrace the gospel with your lives, be convicted by the gospel when you sin, and ultimately proclaim the gospel as good news. Worthy lives flow from lives consistent with following what God's word has declared. There's power, by the way, in the testimony of men and women who don't just intellectually assent to the gospel, but put feet to the gospel they say they believe. Worthy lives flow from lives that are committed to God's word and from the realization that gospel citizenship isn't something to be kept to ourselves. Rather, it's something to be showcased and proclaimed to the world. So the first thing we see is simply that gospel citizens showcase the gospel. Look at the rest of verse 27 and notice this, is that gospel citizens are united. Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you remember from last week, Pastor Michael walked through the previous verses to verse 27, and what we saw is we saw that there were people in Philippi that were seeking to disunify the church. Remember what he said, there were people that were preaching Christ out of envy, rivalry, you remember that? And that we should be gospel, uh, agents of gospel advancement as we proclaim the gospel. Unity is on Paul's mind as he's writing here to the church at Philippi. He's seen what disunity looks like. He's seen the hurt, the pain that it causes. So Paul tells them whether he comes to see them or is absent, his desire is to hear how they are united as a body of believers. And he walks through four different unifiers that we too should strive for. 
The first unifier that we see is simply this, is that we should be united by standing firm in Jesus. Notice what he says, that he may hear that you are standing firm. To stand firm literally means to hold one's ground, to maintain your position, to be steadfast or upright. It's a word used of soldiers in a defensive posture. Looking at the onslaught, that, onslaught that's coming towards them, they plant their feet steady on the ground and they're waiting for the attack to come. They're in a defensive posture. The idea carries with it that those that are standing firm will stand firm until the very last one falls. And as gospel citizens, what we see here is that we should be united in our defense of the gospel. That we should plant our feet firmly upon the gospel of Jesus. We should lock arms with those around us, believers in our schools, in our workplaces, in our gyms, in our families. We should stand our ground in defense of the gospel that has redeemed us. But you gotta catch this. Our foundation for standing in the gospel is Jesus. And it's not just an understanding of what the gospel is. To know what the gospel is, is great. And I love that in my conversation with so many of you, you are gospel fluent. I mean, you can tell me that you are a dirty, rotten sinner destined for hell were it not for the cross of Christ. And that's your story and that's mine. You can share with me what Christ has done on the cross. You can share with me how indeed I can repent of my sins and come to faith and trust in Christ alone. But to stand firm on just a mere understanding of the gospel, we will not last to the end. It's not just a standing firm on an understanding of the gospel, but it's standing firm upon an understanding and a practice of the gospel. There's something amazing and unifying that happens when we take the gospel we know and put it into practice. A few weeks ago, uh, we lead a college small group at our home. A few weeks ago, we got toilet paper. That wasn't fun, but you know, it's still in my trees. But a few weeks ago, we helped one of our neighbors move. We gathered together some stronger college guys. Ironically, I'm not the strongest. We went over to their house and we moved furniture. We loaded U-Hauls. We took it to a storage unit. We helped them for, I don't know, about a half a day. The reality is, is that those men and women that did that were putting into practice the gospel that they said they believed, that they should love their neighbors as themselves. And in so doing, there was a moment when my neighbor looked at her husband and said, isn't it strange that a bunch of college guys that don't know us and we don't know them are here at our house moving our furniture for us. Isn't that weird? Isn't that odd? And in those moments, we step in with the truth of the gospel. That the reason why we're here is because we love you and we love Jesus and he loves you. That we step in in those moments and we look for opportunities to not just talk about the gospel, but to practice the gospel. The second thing we see here is that we are united in one spirit and one mind. Unity in spirit and mind, by the way, is not something easily attained. In fact, Paul, again, had already seen what disunity looked like at the church in Corinth and the church at Rome. And the idea here of being united in spirit and mind is to have united affection with your emotions and united attention with your mind. 
There is a unity, a harmony, an interdependence that has been seen within the church since its inception in Acts 2. But catch this, that unity is not something that's easily attained. That unity is something to fight for. And as gospel citizens, our pursuit, our goal with unity is that it should be sought, it should be practiced, and it should be pursued. That if we are alongside men and women who have nailed the gospel and been nailed by the gospel, if they understand that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, if that's their understanding of the gospel, then we can lock arms with them and pursue fighting against the advancements of sin in this world. The third thing we see is that we are united in our striving. Notice what it says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. United in our striving has a picture of athletes on a team striving together in a contest that is hard and difficult. This past week, I still have a friend. I say still have a friend because he was my friend after this story. I have a friend named Brian. And Brian gave me a call, and this was our conversation. Yo, bro, you want to work out? Sure. I mean, I'm younger-ish. We can do that. Let's do it, man. So we go to the gym, and we start working out. And after we're done with our first set, I wanted to be an encourager. So I looked at him. I was like, Brian, bro, we got it. We got 100 more reps, man. Five reps is encouraging to hear. 100 reps is not encouraging to hear. And about rep, I don't know, five, both of us were like, bro, do you hate me right now? Yeah, I hate me too. Do you hate that you called me today? Yeah, I hate that you called me too. We're not athletes anymore, are we? Far from it, man, I know. Do you wanna quit? Yeah. Me too. As we're striving together side by side in that workout, what helped us get through those 100 reps of five pound weights? <laughs> what helped us get through, what made that workout palatable, not enjoyable, was that we were working together. Catch this. We are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Christian life is not a life meant to be lived in isolation. It's not a life where you can strive side by side alone because there's nobody next to you. It's a life intentionally meant to be lived side by side, striving, working, pursuing in a contest like athletes on the same team for what? Not for mere bodily transformation. Brian and I aren't ever gonna be cover models. Sorry, babe. We are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We strive not just to be unified, although unity is great. We strive because our goal is to strive side by side in pursuit of unity with the gospel. But as we do so, recognize that opposition will come. It will come from your home, it will come from your own inclination to sin. It will come from coworkers, friends, family, schoolmates. It will come from teachers. I don't care where it comes from. Just understand opposition will come. The Bible declares that it is so, and it is so. When opposition comes, it shows us two clear things as we are striving side by side for the unity of the gospel. The first is when opposition comes, it shows us who the enemies of Jesus are 
Notice it says a clear sign of their destruction. When those that come against you, they come, it's showing us who the enemies of Jesus are, but not only shows us that, it affirms for us our gospel citizenship. Paul tells us as that opposition comes, as it's there, it will be a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The fourth unifier that we see here in this passage is simply this, is that we are united in our suffering. Paul tells us it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake and engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Notice what Paul tells us. It has been granted the same word that's used for grace throughout the New Testament. You have been given the grace to not you have been given the grace to you that you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake it's a grace that you believe in Jesus it's also a grace that you suffer for him and here's what I know I know because each and every week I read through your prayer requests I know each and every week because I talk with you and we pray for you that here in this room right now each and every one of us could point to a moment of suffering in the past or present that we're enduring. We're children of run from the Lord. Our husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers have died. Where the sin of somebody else enacted upon us has caused us to suffer or our own sin has caused us to suffer. Where our marriages are a mess, we're addicted to pornography, we're addicted to any type of substance and you come in here each and every week faithfully and you sit in this seat and the weight that you carry is pressing upon your shoulders I know there is unbearable suffering family members that have cancer wives that have lost children it's unbearable suffering So hear me say this with as much clarity as I can. You aren't alone in your suffering, one. And two, your suffering is unbearable when you've forgotten that God is still with you. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, had this to say about suffering. He said, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. That truth doesn't take away your pain. But you have been given the grace not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. May that suffering drive us to the Savior who's redeemed our souls. The third thing we see in this passage is that gospel citizens put others first. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
as gospel citizens, if we've been redeemed by Jesus, our unity means that we'll have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, participate with his spirit, and be affectionate and sympathetic because we possess the same mind, the same love, and are in full accord with one another. If this is a true statement of our citizenship, then catch this, we'll put others first as we seek to live as gospel citizens. To put somebody before yourself, by the way, is not natural. On Thursday night, we had 35 people at my home, 20 of which were children under the age of eight. I don't live in a big house. To have two kids in my house is chaos. Multiply that by 10, and it's ridiculous. There was a moment when we were celebrating kind of our uh, Friendsgiving, and if you don't do that, you should, it's great, and we're in our basement, and the kids are putting on a play, right? There's 20 of them, and there was this moment, it's just chaos, and all the parents are sitting in there letting it happen. It's just there. There was this moment where this little boy runs into the play area and, and expresses his desire to be a part of the play, and the best, I got it on film, I wish I could show it to you. Here's what happened a little girl came up to him and said, no. (laughs) And he just immediately started crying. It was a beautiful picture. And the reality is, is that 19 other children wanted to be before that two-year-old. That to have him in the play would detract, would add one more person that would detract from them. And he turned away and ran and cried, and I don't know what happened next, but... It's not natural for us to want to put others before ourselves. It's not natural for a five-year-old. It's not natural for a 50-year-old. Hey, catch it. Coming into this week of Thanksgiving when you're going to be with family, is it natural for you to put somebody before yourself? I mean, when you go cray-cray at Black Friday, (laughs) don't act like you don't. Man, are you going to be that person that trips people on the way into Target? I'm not gonna say I wouldn't. I'm also not gonna say I would. Because I don't know in that moment. It's not natural for us to put others first. But the beauty of the gospel being shown and practiced in our lives is that we have the ability through the power of Christ to put others first. Here in the first four verses of Philippians 2, Paul gives us three things that we should put to death as we seek to live as gospel citizens and two things that we should seek to give life to as gospel citizens. The things that we should put to death, if you notice in the passage, you should put to death selfishness. Literally, one who pursues their own personal goals only. You should put to death conceit, somebody who seeks personal glory and acclaim. And you should put to death your desire to look out for yourself. An inward, self-focused, selfish concern that only thinks what is it for me, what is in it for me. As gospel citizens, we are actively pursuing the murder of those things. Selfishness, conceit, and a desire to look out for ourselves. And as we, through the power of Jesus, strive together to pursue those things, we also seek to give life to humility, the disposition of valuing or assessing yourself appropriately, especially in light of your own sin. Do you know how to humble yourself? Realize you're not the best in the room. And realize that you have junk, and so do I. 
and my junk stinks. And when I assess myself in view of my own sin, how could I ever elevate myself above somebody else? We are to breathe life into humility and breathe life into the interests of others, literally outward others focused for the joy of the gospel. So this morning you're sitting here and you're asking yourself a bunch of questions as you always do. Eight o'clock did a great job at asking questions. I can only assume you do better. The question you should be asking yourself is coming into Thanksgiving when I'll see Aunt Sally and Uncle Phil for the first time in 15 years. Coming into this week where it's assumed family is gonna be in the component. Coming into this week where indulgence and gluttony and all of these things are gonna be battling for my attention. Coming into this week of Thanksgiving, how in the world can I put others first? I'm so glad you asked. How will you put others first this week? Here's five simple ways to put others first. Caveat statement. To do this outside of being a gospel citizen is trying to be righteous by your own works. And it won't work. The baseline, the foundation of all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ having moved and transformed your life. If that's true, if you're a gospel citizen, the first thing to do is this. Invest in your family. Invest in your family. Whether you have a mother, a father, a grandma, a grandpa, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a husband, a wife, a brother, or a sister, a son, or a daughter, invest in your family. Stay off the couch. Stay away from the TV. Put your phone down. Seek to, as you're gathering around the Thanksgiving table, model thankfulness. A couple years ago, we had Thanksgiving when we lived in Virginia. We had my family, my wife's family, and my brother-in-law's family. I'm not related to them. Gather around our table. And it was the first time I had ever done this. We gathered around the table, and one of the first statements we made was this. Hey, why don't we all just share one thing we're thankful for this year? Bro, you would have thought I asked them to solve the space-time continuum. (laughs) For my family, we've never done that. We've, we've never taken the time to stop at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, and communicate what we're thankful for. Man, what would that look like for you? Just a simple, guys, what are we thankful for? What has God done in our hearts and our lives? Hey, husbands, serve your wife by cleaning up after Thanksgiving. Buy paper plates. You don't have to do dishes with paper plates. Recycle them, but you don't have to do dishes with them. Seek seek to invest purposefully in those that you don't see often. Number two, invest in ministry. Invest in ministry. How can you put others first? By investing in ministry. It's hard to have selfish ambition and conceit and to look out only for your own interests when you are trying to pursue serving others in ministry. Some of you just need to say yes to stepping into a small group. Others need to say yes to being an apprentice of a small group. Still others need to say yes to being launched as new small group leaders because you've been an apprentice for 28 years. Some of us can simply say hi when somebody walks through the door on a Sunday, can show them to our seats. Some of us can wield lightsabers in the parking lot. My son wants to do that. He's not big enough yet. Others can hold babies that are sick or just gross. 
here's the point. Is there's opportunities to serve, but we need to realize that service doesn't stop here within the walls of Harvest Bible Chapel. Some of you need to say yes to mentoring somebody with Transformation Ministries. Some of us can give of our finances to buy gifts to help them have a better Christmas and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us need to give up our seats in 945 in a week or two and go to the earlier or later service. Some of us need to serve here on a Sunday morning. Some of us need to serve throughout the week. The point is, ministry doesn't start and stop within our walls. And as a gospel citizen, you are a proclaimer of good news. Is your life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is your identity, is where you're from now as a born-again believer clear in every facet, every aspect? Third, build relationships. Build relationships with non-believers. You know, it's a beautiful thing to have a friend that isn't a Christian. It's just fun. It is. It's fun to get to know your neighbors, to get to know your coworkers, to get to know your family. Again, your Christian life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, and the gospel, by the way, flows easiest down the highways and avenues of relationships. Build relationships with your neighbors. Invite them over for a board game. I don't play board games. Play Monopoly. Everybody loves to be rich. Everybody hates to lose. Do something to purpose in your heart to build relationships with others. And that could look like a thousand different things. For us, it's inviting people into our home. For you, that might not be the case. For you, it could be sitting down with a coworker at lunch or hanging out with that mom at Mott's or smiling at that cashier at Martin's that's had a horrible day when you ask her and she says she's had a horrible day, you don't just let that kind of ride. You kind of walk into that mess. You know, why you had a bad day? I did that once to a lady at Lowe's. She had just lost her son, I think. I don't remember the whole story, so I can't share it. She had, something had happened. Just lost her son. First time that she was going through the year without having her son. I mean, we were able to walk into that. Build relationships with people. Get out of your comfort zone. Open up your life to others. The fourth thing that you can do is lend a hand and look for an opportunity to serve. If you are going to be in an environment this week where people will be serving you, what would it look like if you flipped the tables and tried to serve them? Or if you just purposed to ask the simple question, how can I help? whether it's sitting with that cousin you hate and nobody wants to talk to and you let them talk for hours on end and pay attention, or whether it's you being conscious of opportunities that are coming your way. Look to be proactive in your responsibilities. Communicate with your family the good news of the gospel. Live a life worthy. Lend a hand. And the last is a culmination of all four. Invest in community. This is different than building relationships because this isn't just community as in I'm the president of my HOA. It's community as in I'm stepping into gospel community. 
I am being sharpened by men and by women who are pursuing Jesus. We are locking arms, standing firm upon the faith that's in Christ, striving side by side for the unity that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look for opportunities as a gospel citizen to invest in community. Again, we can't do our life as a believer, as a gospel citizen in isolation. We must invest in community through the context of honest, intentionally intrusive relationships for redemptive purposes. Our hope in pursuing community is to begin a gospel-centered community with honest, intentionally intrusive relationships for redemptive purposes. You know what that means? That means when I'm sitting across from you and you got junk, bro, you just talk about your junk and we look to Jesus as how he can resolve it. And we do it together. It means that when we gather together for a meal, we're honest with one another, where we've fallen, where we've excelled, what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. Again, it goes all the way back to, are you a gospel citizen? Is your citizenship different because of the faith that you've placed in Christ alone? And are you practicing the faith you say you possess? Invest in intentional relationships. Invest in community. So today as the band comes and as we come to a close, I want to encourage you. What does your life reflect? If you're a gospel citizen, are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? If you are, are you practicing the gospel that you say you believe? Are you putting feet to the faith that you have? If you're here this morning and you aren't a gospel citizen, man, let me be clear one more time. God is holy and we are fractured from him because of the sin that we've committed. Not only that, the sin that we're born into. And we can never have a right relationship with the creator who made us, who knit us and formed us together in our mother's womb were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ. God's son coming to earth, living a perfect sinless life so that through his death on the cross, our penalty for sin might be paid and we might exercise saving faith by repenting and believing in him. So this morning, there's two avenues for you. If you're a gospel citizen, how can you put feet to the faith you believe? If you aren't a believer in Jesus, why not? Here in a moment, we're gonna take communion. Communion is a time for us as gospel citizens to reflect upon Christ's sacrifice for our sins. The very next verses in Philippians chapter two say this. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him bestowed upon him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, modeled for us humility in coming to earth and emptying himself, fully God, fully man, living a perfect, sinless life, dying on the cross for our sins, his body broken, his blood shed for us. So this morning, I want to be as clear as I can. As we partake in communion together, it's for gospel citizens only. If you're not a believer in Jesus, just let it pass before you. But if you are a gospel citizen, as our ushers come forward, take a few moments and search your heart. Man, confess your sin. Be pure and right before the God of the universe as we seek to remember his body broken and the blood shed for us.